Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now, my hairy mai. I'm John McDonald. Kia ora, and welcome to the Hut Zone on Thursday, the 10th of March. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we continue our time travel with our two local history series, one on early Eastbourne from the 1981 interviews where Claire Toonby talks with Bill Baker, tonight on studying and leisure in the 1930s. And the other is from Upper Hutt Library's 2014 Heritage Archives, where Sir George Chapman talks on his life with Jane Cherry. And this episode is on the fall and rise of political life in the 1970s. This week's story is from Silverstream's Angeli Toomey, Why Would Anyone Worship a Sun God?, the poem tonight is from Lower Hutt's Michelle Zhao and is suitably seasonal. And there is plenty of local music tonight from former Nine Nine musicians Bill and Boyd, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, Upper Hutt's Jade Eru, Ave Maria, and Lower Hutt's The Black Seeds, Raised with Love. But let's start with some rain from Upper Hutt's Anita Prime.
crying and knew I was dying Ain't no time but to the heavens think I see some storm clouds Break the skies open Let the rain fall down And that was Rain from Anita Prime Okay, time to hear a local poem read by Trentham's Arlene Croft. I'm Arlene Croft and I'm reading a poem by Michel Jao called Photo, Song, Poem and Life. Sun, moon and stars, blue skies, white clouds, green mountains and azure seas. No words I could describe their beauties, so I take photos to tell sunrise, sunset and season changes. Flowers blossom, leaves fade and new grasses. No chance I could save their moments. So I capture motions to enjoy children's smiles, people's hugs and daily lives, birthday cakes, Footprints on different soils and locked down empty streets. No show I could watch their ends, so I make frames to remember. Wind, sea waves and sound of rain dripping. Summer cicada, tweeting birds, barking dogs and rustling trees. I listen and I croon to echo natural wonder. Laughing, crying and breathing. People talking. Hands clapping, heart beating and moaning during sex, I experience. And I chant to celebrate newborn and say goodbye to loved ones. Weddings, funerals and festivals. Honking cars, running machines, noisy TVs and voice of hope, I live. And I sing to record yesterday, today and tomorrow. Lockdown, earthquakes, windy summer and work from home. I mark down dates and years, miss you, daydream, a place and life journey. I rehearse stories in my mind. To mum, to my love, to friends, to the one who hurts me, to strangers on the streets. I send my care, my happiness, my feelings, my dreams and my wishes to them. To an uncertain world, to a new day, to a better life, to love and be loved to be alive, to you and me. I write my first performance poem on this beautiful autumn night. And that was Michelle's Zhao, Photo, Song, Poem and Life, read by Arlene Croft. Okay, time for more local recollections in the 1981 series, where Victoria University of Wellington PhD student Claire Tuanby talks with Eastbourne residents on their family life in the early decades of the 20th century. Today we hear more of her talk with Bill Baker, with contributions from her assistant interviewer, Gavin. Was your father a member of any clubs or any organisations? Uh, you know, 
returning serviceman or, oh, or yes, anything yes, like he, that. He was, he was keen on the army. Uh -huh. He was a sergeant major in the First World War. Keen on the Eastbourne Football Club, he was a member of that. Though he didn't play football, but he was very, very keen on following the Eastbourne Football Club. Uh -huh. Because in those days it was quite a, quite a club. One stage they played Batoni for the uh, championship yes. back in the 30s. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Got soundly beaten. There'd be a social side to that too. Uh, uh, what about his friends? Did he find his friends among the other football supporters? Oh, I presume so, yes. yes. Did he go to the pub? Well, there was no pub here. No. Mm. If he went to the pub, it was in town. Ah, yes. Yeah. yes. And uh, it would be uh, if he knocked off at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. Yeah. And there might be an hour in the pub, and then he'd catch the one o'clock boat home. Yes. Was there any particular pub that Eastbourne might suit to get into in Wellington? Oh, very good question. Yes, there used to be the old uh, pier, the and pier, uh, yeah. what was the one alongside it? The post office, wasn't it? Pier? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just a little bit further up. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because that's right on the Ferry Wharf, practically. Close to the Ferry Wharf, yeah. yeah. So, I wonder, you know, if they went to a football match or something on the weekends, would they gather back in the pier? Yes, so when, uh, when I played football for each one, we used to uh, always go to Clyde Key after. Clyde Key? Yeah, yeah, for some unknown reason, I don't know why, but the team always ended up there. I think it was because their counter life was better than any of the other clubs. <laughs> Practical reasons. Yeah. <laughs> used to have lovely pieces of fried chicken and fried uh, fish, sausages, potatoes, put up with the most of the beer. Well, earlier we did that sort of, because you've done an apprenticeship and um, I think you've gone to night schools. What sort of hours did you work? Eight to five. Uh-huh. Um, Catch the seven o'clock boat in and the quarter past five boat home. Yes. And then Saturday mornings. And Saturdays. Uh, what about holidays? Two weeks unpaid at Christmas time. Unpaid? Unpaid, yes. I, know, I suppose you were obliged to take it too. Firm those down. No. Started off at 15 shillings a week. Yes. And uh, then the next year it was 22 and 6. Yeah. And uh, the next year it was 25 shillings. Yes. Uh, what was after that? I think you ended up with about uh, 32 and 6 or something like that. And that was when you were in danger of becoming a journeyman. Yeah. So uh, I was kept on as an improver at three pounds a week. And the journeyman was getting uh, half a crown there. Were you doing the sort of job that you wanted to do yourself? Well, I don't know. I mean, I had to become an electrician because it was the only job I could get as an apprentice. Uh-huh. Um, as I said previously, uh, Dad was put on half time. I spent one year at Wellington College, and that was all my secondary education. Dad going on half-time, they couldn't afford to keep me at college. So oh. I spent 1928 there and that was it. So it was find a job. It was either an electrician or in uh, one of the uh, big uh, wholesale firms as a sort of uh, working in the store. He settled for the electrician, not me. He happened to know the manager of Timothy Jones in those days. And they took me on, so I say that was it. 
I got in the habit of writing down what I did draw down. I still do that today. Yeah. 
wonderful. Now, the pianist has only just passed away. Oh. And uh, he was living in Wyver too, and his name was Doug Whitney. And he was a squadron leader, and he was one of the few in the uh, Battle of Britain. And uh, he was the local Wellington president of the Griffin Club. And he was our pianist. And one of my pals, Harold Gower, he was uh, on the saxophone. Jack Wilkie was on the banjo. Malcolm Chain was on the violin. And himself on the drums. And uh, we had the irritability makers. Well, were these all permanent residents? Yeah. Yeah, you're all permanent. Now, the chain's name you've got. You've got, you'll have Robert Chain. Chain, 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 Robert Chain. Yes, we have. He is the younger brother of Malcolm. Malcolm's dead. He, oh. Malcolm played in the band, not Rob. Uh-huh. And then there was another chap, too, that had something to do with bands, was it? Rudolph. Oh, Henry Rudolph. Yeah, Henry yeah. Rudolph. Henry Rudolph lives right next door to a Kiwi. Yeah, yeah. He was mostly not in the way, he was mostly out of the way. But he, he's a great musician. He used to have a couple of years ago this girl's choir. Oh, that was a I'm John McDonald and you're on the Hudson on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was the late Bill Baker talking to PhD student Claire Toonby back in 1981 on Bill's family life in the early decades of last century. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. The final part is next Thursday. Okay, time for some music. From former Nine based musicians Bill and Boyd, here's their version of He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. In his hands, he's got the whole 
And that was Bill and Boyd. He's got the whole world in his hands. Time for a short story from a Silverstream-based writer. Why Would Anyone Worship a Sun God? A short story by Angelie Toomey. The heat of the day felt as if it could burn away the sins of the night before. It was the sort of furnace blast that bleached animals' bones in the desert and sent the general populace to seek shelter indoors, with air conditioners struggling to pump out air at the coldest setting. Sunburn and dehydration were just two of the daily threats she had to deal with. This truly was a two-bit, half-horse, hellhole of a town, so in addition to the hostile environment, Claire had to battle the aforementioned populace and its collective denigration of her kind. Not a tall woman by any means, she nonetheless usually found a way to hold her own. A functioning brain, quick wit, and an eye well-trained to see trouble coming were amongst her best assets. The revolver she wore on her hip provided additional motivation for people to keep their spittle to themselves. At this very moment, she sits in a favourite chair on the wide veranda of the hotel where she works. It is a low-paying job. The customers are crass and the owner even worse. But it enables her to enjoy the lifestyle to which she had become accustomed. And by that I mean she could eat most days. Things had not always been this hard. Claire still remembers the way it felt to walk on cool, soft grass, a depth of green she hadn't seen for at least two decades. She remembers turning on a tap to collect fresh, clean water, a luxury now long gone. The world today, what is left of it, is full of climate change refugees like herself. They had returned to ancient nomadic patterns of living, Although without the benefit of the indigenous knowledge that could have helped them read the landscape and survive, instead Claire had spent years taking leaps of faith that water could be found in this direction, or or maybe over there. She had traversed most of this vast dry continent, and over the years she had stumbled into a myriad of towns just like this one, a desolate outpost perched on top of a deep well. It was the closest thing to an oasis that anyone could find these days, as they desperately try to eke out an existence. And none of the established residents take too kindly to the idea of sharing much of anything. And it is getting harder with each passing year for everyone living with the knowledge that one day they would taste salt. Until then, they do their best to live. One would imagine that living in such conditions would wear a person down, lead them to a path of letting go. Somehow, though, Claire had found the energy to keep going, probably fed by a stubborn streak that refused to accept defeat. It will be another five hours before the sun goes down and temperatures begin to ease. In the old days... A hot day would be followed by a night so cold 
that the pipes would freeze and icicles form on wire fences. These days, due to a superheated atmosphere, hot days of 55 degrees plus give way to nights of a warm 35. When the sun goes down, people will emerge, bringing the night to life. Even though the dawn still technically heralds the arrival of a new day, it is during the hours of darkness that people will trade their goods and services, find fleeting solace in the company of others, regaining for a moment a sense of belonging and community. There are many others like Claire, scattered around the continent, doing what they can to survive in this new reality. Moving from place to place, they spend increasingly shorter lives in search of work, food and precious water. Those old enough to recall the old ways sometimes pause and ask themselves, how did it come to this? In short, society had spent too long being the frog in the pot. By the time the 2% realised they were at risk too, it was too late. The irreversible damage had already been done. Politicians Captains of industry and celebrity spokesmodels could not save humanity from the encroaching disaster. And so it is that Claire sits in her chair, daydreaming about why anyone would ever worship a sun god, squinting her eyes to block out the worst of the glare as a bead of sweat rolls down her back. And that was Silverstream's Angelie Toomey reading Why Would Anyone Worship a Sun God? Okay, time for some more music. From Apart's Jade Eru, here she is singing Ave Maria.
I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Upper Hut's Jade Eru with Ave Maria. Okay, next up and staying in Upper Hut, time for a little more history. Back in 2014, Jane Cherry talked to longtime resident Sir George Chapman about his life. Jane Cherry. The interview is being recorded at Sir George's home in Barton Avenue, Upper Hutt. And the only extra sounds you may hear are the squeak of a chair. (laughs) (laughs) We hope. (laughs) We hope you don't hear too many squeaks of the chairs. Yeah, they're a bit squeaky. Uh, Now, you were talking about Muldoon giving you um, when you got the position at CNZ. Yes, and, and so that uh, recognised the contribution, I felt recognised the contribution I was making to the National Party. So in 1969 I was in the a regional chair. It involved a tremendous amount of work, of course, an enormous commitment, giving, having regard to the importance of, of the area uh, and the numbers of uh, ministers, prime minister, deputy prime minister. How did you manage to run your business? Oh, it seemed to keep going, and I had partners, of course, so I'd built a, quite a strong partnership. And by that time, we'd moved to Chapman House, and so we had a nice secure base. Chapman House still remains. <laughs> so that was... Uh, no, it worked quite well, and so that uh, was satisfactory. I had My partners understood that I had this commitment, which I was engaging in and enjoying, and so that's the way it went. So I travelled travelled the country, engaged in many selections. 1969, National won the election. Uh, but by that time, the, the pressure was starting on the National Party. The problems were starting. What I'd done during my time as chairman of the region was to build a strong team around us organisationally. And because I was younger, really, than... Most of the other areas was bringing younger people, particularly in the Wellington city area, Wellington regional area. So I had a strong activist element caught within the National Party organisation within the Wellington region. And that finally boiled over in 1971 because I'd taken over as chairman from Ned Holt, who was a delightful person, but essentially as president he was a chairman, not a leader. Unexpectedly, despite the fact that it had never happened before, I was nominated as president, the role of president in 1971. Uh, While he was still president? Whilst he was president, yes. Yes, I was contesting, nominate, contest, nominated to contest the presidency. How did you feel about that? I I was not comfortable. I stalled for uh, a number of weeks. I consulted around the country. I spoke to Keith Holyoke himself and Jack Marshall, who were the contenders. Well, Keith had already said he was told us privately he was going to step down, so I knew that he was going to step down, but that was not public information. Uh, Jack Marshall wanted to become leader. I knew that. 
and he encouraged me to put my name forward. Keith also said, you know, if that's what you feel, you can do that. I spoke to my colleagues around the country. By that time, I had a wide range of colleagues and friends around the country. They all said, well, George, we, we, we've committed already to support Ned Holt. Find it very... So I knew that I couldn't win. So I went back to those who nominated me and I said, well, guys, I can't win this, but what we have to say is important. The party is in trouble. If you've chosen me as the voice to speak that for this group, to the party. So what was the main problem, do you think, with the party at the time? Oh, well, it was the fourth year. Mm. Uh, and, and so there was a rundown of support within the party. That was evident. Momentum and the impetus that sits within a political party to return to office, to stay in government, had, was gradually dying. And, and I could sense it. My colleagues could sense it, and I felt important to know. Now, Bill Rowling had become president of the Labour Party, and he was a very activist president, very influential. And, and not only could I see a national organisation fading, but I could see Labour strengthening. It was very visible, you know, for myself as a, an active person in the political arena. So I've even though I knew I couldn't win, I decided to proceed on and, and contest the presidency. A uh, very important role in government, of course. Uh, as current events tell you what happens when any position is contested. It was given enormous publicity at the time. And, of course, although my intent was to talk about the party state of the party organisation, it soon became... Uh, the media soon focused on the leadership of the government. Now, Keith Hardiker had not indicated he intended to retire, although there was much speculation about it. Jack Marshall, everybody knew Jack was going to contend. Rob Muldoon also wanted to contend. So that was going on in the background and in the public media whilst I was trying to focus attention on the state of the party organisation. Anyway, we went to the conference, uh, we... It was a good conference, but I lost the presidency. But it, it didn't worry me. I felt that I discharged my obligation to, the, to my political party. That was it. I had no ambition. I, hadn't, I wasn't doing it for any reason other than to discharge my obligation, and I felt I'd done that. In fact, by the time of 72 came, Keith Holyoke then retired, Announced he, he delayed the announcement, which should have been made earlier than... So did he go willingly? Yes. Oh, yes. He, he, he'd told us in, in 71 he was going, but we thought he was going late in 71. It wasn't until 72 he made... Early 72 he made that decision, and then Marshall and Muldoon contested the leadership for the Prime Minister. Of course, that was the position they were contesting for, and Marshall won and... Muldoon became deputy leader. Marshall then turned to me and said, well, I want you to be chairman of the party's publicity committee, which in itself was a death trap <laughs> in any political party. And I said, all right, Jack, well, that was my position. I was fulfilling my obligations. There was another obligation imposed on me. Well, there it was. I'm 
not concerned about what the future is. I will do the job that's here on hand. And I suppose it reflects somewhat back to my previous experience during the war, the obligation, you know, from my given from my father, the obligation you have to, to serve. And there I was. So I was prepared to serve. The election was a disaster, no question about it. Kirk won in a landslide. So I caught the blame like every, like Marshall did. And I was right there in the top, right very exposed. What's it, what does it feel like on that on election night when you Oh it's a very hollow feeling when you've committed everything to it to experience that. So How long does it take you to get buoyant again and to start to want to Well, in my case it, it came back quite quickly. Uh, because I'd met my obligations. I'd done everything that I felt I should do. I'd stood for the president and said, this is how grim it's, it is. I'd done what I could for the publicity I, at the request of the leader of the party. So I then offered for the presidency. At that stage, I realised the damage I'd done to my prospects in standing and contesting for the leadership. Never been done before. And also as chairman of the party's publicity committee on a failed election, I realised that at that stage my prospects of becoming president of the National Party were quite low. But I was there and I'd done all the service up to that point. So logic says, well, go to the conference, make the case, whatever the delegates say, five, six hundred delegates, that'll be the answer. And how often do, do they vote? Once a year. One, just once a year? Yep. Once a year, yep. yeah. So I went to the conference and I couldn't believe it. I was favoured candidate right from the start. Everybody said, you, you're going to win. All the things I'd been concerned about had come to pass. But there was a, a significant contest and it was quite an interesting contest in the sense that there was a huge number there at the, at the conference. It was down in Christchurch, I think, if I remember correctly. There were four candidates, and we each drew for time, and I was fortunate enough to draw the last slot. And each one came back and said, I ran out of time, I ran out of time, <laughs> I ran out of time. By that time, it had so much public experience, including having done this process before, of course, that I had already prepared my what I had to say within the time scale. And so I had a balanced speech which also proved very successful. And uh, although the figures have never been announced, I understand I won on the first ballot. Well, so how many ballots do they have? Uh, until somebody has more than 50%. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you just have to keep... Yeah, keep, they keep going back and count. <laughs> Mind you, this is what we do in the National Party selection as well. Same process. Yes. And have as many as five ballots. I've, I've been at National Party selection meetings where they've had as many as five ballots to try and find who the candidate for the party will be. So there I was, president of the National Party, really caught by a momentum that had started way back, probably back where... Victoria University, who knows? <laughs> I don't know how far back it was. But it was caught from well back and carried through. And the benefit of the preparation, 
particularly the public speaking preparation, which I'd done in the last couple of years at work, at university, the period in the council, that all paid off in, in the cumulative effect of the experience I had on the, in the party organisation itself, all paid off. Mm. Well, well, Apahut is a microcosm, isn't it? Of yeah, yeah. Of that. And so immediately, and I think this is quite important to say, I became a Wellingtonian. Mm. And within a short time, I also became a, a New Zealander only, and nobody knew where I lived or came from. And they only saw me as president of the National Party. So I started... I'd learnt from Dick Slack the leadership issue and, and that's where I started as president of the National Party. I reorganised the head office organisation, bought the skills in the party needed and set about revitalising the party. Of course, when a party goes into, uh, is defeated, it, a lot of the revitalisation is there. It needs the leadership, just needs the leadership. Jack Marshall, of course, was still leader of the party and remained so until he was leader when I was president and remained so for the following year. And we worked well together. Delightful person, Jack Marshall. Wonderful person. And then was uh, Muldoon contested Marshall and, and Muldoon became leader. Was that, a, was that OK? Yeah, yeah. Marshall was all right? Marshall didn't like it, no. no. No, no, he was very unhappy. Mm. And his wife, wife liked it even less. Difficult, for, isn't it? Difficult politics. Very difficult. She never forgave the party for what happened. But I, I, took, I took a simple view, and I said it at the time, it's for the caucus to make that decision. That's, that's what the party rules say. They're as clear as anything on that subject. And that was a very important decision because it affected everything, everything that occurred later. And that was Jane Cherry interviewing Sir George Chapman back in 2014. A big thank you to Uphart Library for letting us play that interview. Part 6 plays next week. But sadly, that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today, and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion, then please make contact, we'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team, and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hut Zone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. Join me next Thursday in the Hut Zone show. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music. Here's the Black Seed, some members of the band reside in Petoni and here they are with Raised With Love. Hairira.
Program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand on air for funding accessmedia.nz.